0: Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you today. Uh, I suppose prohibiting large gatherings due to the virus, I guess, reminds us of the hidden blessing of being a smaller gathering. Um, the title of my sermon this morning is More Than Meets the Eye. It is the tagline to the cartoon and toy uh, industry transformers. Um, I call it that because in each scene of the passage today, we'll consider... Um, to understand the people in each of these scenes, you need to look past appearances. Whether it's Jesus, whether these, the, the scribes or the poor widow in the temple, you need to look past appearances more than meets the eye. While it doesn't have to do much with responding to COVID-19, I went through possible connections. Uh, so for example, you have to look past appearances to see who's a real carrier of COVID-19 because not everybody shows symptoms. Uh, I thought that was kind of (laughs) lame, but then I came across uh, someone who shared these words from C.S. Lewis, they've been going around uh, this past week. C.S. Lewis wrote in 1948 about how Christians are to live in the age of the atomic bomb. Uh, If you substitute the word virus for atomic bomb, I think his words remain really, really relevant. He's worth quoting at length. This is what C.S. Lewis says. In one way, we have a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in the age of the atomic bomb? I'm tempted to reply. Why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the Viking Age when raiders from Scandinavia landed, could a- land any night and cut your throat. Or indeed, as you already are living in the age of cancer, in the age of syphilis, in the age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways we had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors anesthetics but we have that still it is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, finds us doing sensible and human things: praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. <laughs> Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. A virus need not dominate our minds. Let's go to God's word. We're continuing in our study of the book of Mark. We're in chapter 12 today. And verses 35 to 34. If you're looking at a uh, Bible provided to you, it's read, it looks like this. You will find it on page 849. 849. Mark 12. Verses 35 to 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. Lord, So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. Well, the main takeaway from the portion of Mark we'll look at today is a reminder of what we've seen in other places in the book of Mark. The main point is printed in your bulletin. It's to explain who Jesus is and who his true followers are, you have to look past appearances. To explain who Jesus is and who his true followers are, you have to look past appearances. Now, you could plop down at any point in the book of Mark and you'll find some direction as to the identity of, his, of Jesus and what it means to follow him. Who Jesus is and who his followers are. You can plop down at pretty much any point in the book of Mark and figure that out. Get some direction. It's no different today. In today's passage, we'll find three different qualities that mark faithful, genuine followers of Christ. And we'll see how these qualities are actually pretty woven together. It's my prayer that today, God will renew our hearts and minds through his word So that these qualities might mark us more deeply. The very first quality is a knowledge of the Savior. The first quality that should mark Christ's disciples is a knowledge of the Savior. Let me get that straight, Steve, you might be saying in your head already. (laughs) To follow Jesus, we have to know Jesus. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's kind of slap-you-in-the-face common-sense wisdom. But sometimes we need to be slapped in the face with common sense. To use a marriage analogy, that following Jesus involves knowing Jesus is as common sense as being married involves knowing your spouse. You won't be a good husband, you won't be a good wife, unless you know your spouse. It seems really simple, doesn't it? Well, have you ever talked to a person who won't let you get a word in edgewise? He just keeps going. You can't say anything. I'll just say, if you've never talked to a person like that, you might be that person. I'm going to be the Nathan Nathan to your David and say, you are the man. Well, that's okay. If you are that person, Jesus still loves you. (laughs) Being bombarded with words upon words has been Jesus' experience so far on this Tuesday of Holy Week in the temple of Jerusalem. So just take a tour back with me on just one day, Tuesday in Jerusalem. Uh, so they got to the temple in Mark eleven twenty-seven. So they arrive in the temple on this Tuesday, eleven twenty-seven, and what happens? Chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. Came to challenge him. Right after that, what happens? Chapter 12, verse 13. That group sent another group, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap Jesus in his talk. After that, the same day, still in the temple, chapter 12, verse 18, Sadducees came to him, again, to trap Jesus in his talk. After that, we're not even done yet, chapter 12, verse 28, one of the scribes came to him, asked Jesus another tricky question. Challenge after challenge after challenge, all in one day. But now we get to the start of our passage, chapter 12, verse 35. And do you see the difference? This time it starts, Jesus taught in the temple. All these other groups are finally done talking. Now it's Jesus' turn to set the agenda of what they're going to talk about. And what does Jesus choose? He talks about the true identity of the Messiah. In other words, he talks about who he truly is. Like the other groups asked him questions, Jesus is the one this time who asked a question of his own. He asks, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Just to remind you, the scribes were supposed to be experts on the Bible. And they said that the Christ, which is another word for the Messiah, which means anointed one, they said that the Christ is the son of David. He would come in the line of David. And was, so was Jesus saying they were wrong for this? Saying, no, 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 the Christ isn't the son of David. Well, not long before this scene, just two days prior, actually, on the Sunday of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, all these people welcomed Jesus, proclaiming what? He's the son of David. Jesus, I don't remember reading him correcting these people. So were the scribes wrong in saying that Jesus was the son of David? Well, no. The scribes were wrong in saying that Jesus was just the son of David, that the Christ was only the son of David. So to prove this, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. That's how you could see a lot of times in most translations. uh, So you see in verse 36, what's quoted is set apart a little bit. That usually, that's the translation's help to us that what's quoted there is from the Old Testament. So Psalm 110 is among the most quoted Old Testament chapters in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is a royal song that speaks of a king when he takes the throne. The king in Psalm 110, though, is unique. We see it even here, just a little bit. The king in this psalm sits at God's right hand. And the position of being at the right hand was very, very important in that day in society. To sit at God's right hand would indicate that this king partakes in the same power, the same righteousness as God himself. This king is unique. As Psalm 110 continues on, other parts of the New Testament quotes it, because the king in Psalm 110 is not just a king, he's also a priest. After the order of Melchizedek. Fancy name, it might be the name of my dog, future on. I don't know. We'll see, Um, uh, Anyway, Psalm 110 is a very unique place. It's a unique king. So this king fulfills both the functions of king being ruling of God's people and priest representing God's people. So Jesus' argument that the Christ is more than the son of David, it depends on a couple of factors. So look closely at verse 36, just in how he prepares to quote Psalm 110. He says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. So Jesus' argument depends on a couple things. It depends first that David is the one who wrote Psalm 110. So if you go back to that psalm in the original setting, you'll see a little inscription right before verse 1 it's, that comes in a lot of different psalms. Those are actually a part of the original text. Psalm 110 indicates that David wrote it. Now, why does this matter? Because if David is the one who wrote it, he has to be talking about someone else besides him. David's talking about a king that's not him. A king that will come after him and is separate from him. So Jesus' argument depends on that, that David is the one who wrote it, but also, looking back at verse 36, just a little detail we might glance over. It says, David himself in the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus' use of Psalm 110, depends on the origin of this psalm. David wrote in the Holy Spirit. Here, Jesus affirms what's known as the inspiration of the Bible. That doesn't mean that the Bible is inspiring, though it is. That means that the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says here, inspired human authors to write down all that God wanted them to write down The Holy Spirit inspired human authors in such a way that he worked through their personalities. He worked through their own writing styles. He worked through their particular sets of circumstances. All of that to write down what God wanted them to write down. So that each book of the Bible is unique, but the ultimate origin of it is one. It's common. It's God himself, which is why we can call it God's Word. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Talks about another king who shares in God's rule, but a king that's separate from and comes after him. So, even though this king would come after David, what does David call him? David calls him Lord. The Lord, as Yahweh said to my Lord, this king. This means that David knows that the Messiah is someone more than just his human descendant, he is more than David's son. And so Jesus asks, well, whose son is he? We've gotten the answer before, haven't we? From God himself. When Jesus was baptized, when Jesus was transfigured, what did God say? This is my beloved son. More than David's son. The Messiah is God's son. So as Jesus does again and again, he corrects people's misunderstanding of who he truly is. He shows the scribe that he is more than the sons of David. He is David's Lord, the Son of God. He's the one who came in the line of David, yes, to fulfill what was promised to David, like we read in 2 Samuel 7, that there would be one of his descendants that would rule on his throne forever and ever. But the Messiah has existed well before David. Jesus stepped off his throne, being God the Son, so that he was born of a woman Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law's curse. I think it's telling that when Jesus finally gets a chance to set the agenda of what they talk about, that this is what he chooses. He chooses this topic. You know, the religious authorities, time and time again, they came up to Jesus, they talked about what authority is, they talked about taxes, they talked about Caesar and politics. They talked about life after death. They talked about how to interpret the Bible. All those issues matter. That wasn't the real issue with them. The real issue was who the Messiah is according to the scriptures. The religious authorities weren't against Jesus because his stance on what authority is or his stance on politics or his stance on Bible interpretation. The religious authorities were against Jesus Because Jesus claimed too much for himself. But Jesus was simply lining up with what the Bible says, who the Messiah is, son of David and son of God. So if this is Jesus' starting point issue, who he really is, if that's where Jesus starts, I think we should make that our starting point as well. You'll hear people say all the time, that all religions are basically the same. You know, they accomplish the same thing. They make good, virtuous people. You'll hear people say all the time that all religions essentially worship the same God. Now, to to give credit to that, with less and less people knowing what they believe and why they believe it, I could see why people would think that, just because everything ends up looking very vague anyway. But... All religions are not the same. And this particular issue really, really proves that. It relates to the issue that Jesus chooses here. Among all the other religions in the world, among the several things that sets Christianity apart, includes what we believe about who Jesus really is. Christianity alone believes that Jesus is more than an influential human teacher. Christianity alone believes that Jesus is the Son of God, taken on flesh. So at the end of Mark's gospel, we'll read of a Roman centurion looking at Jesus as Jesus is on the cross, and what does he say? He says, truly, this was the Son of God. You read John's gospel, the book of John, and at the very end, John tells us why he wrote all that he wrote. What does he say? So I could have included a bunch more things, but I included what I did to prove to you that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that you would believe that, and believing that, you would have life in His name. The Apostle Paul, who himself maybe was here on that day in the city of Jerusalem as a young Pharisee, somebody who would have been against Jesus. The Apostle Paul later on, in the beginning of the book of Romans. He wrote of the gospel that he now proclaimed, which he says at the beginning of Romans 1, that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Son of David, son of God. Friend, given all that's going on this week, all the issues that you could think about, you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't believe in Jesus, would you get clear on who Jesus really is? As you see him in according to this word. To follow Jesus, you have to know Jesus. That's the starting point. As I was with someone this week, uh, just going over material about our salvation The question came up of how you would explain to someone how to be saved. That's a really good question that we should all figure out. And this person said, in answer to that question, she said, I'd start with who Jesus is, because Jesus is the one who saves us. And I thought that was a great answer. I'd start with who Jesus is. It just made me wonder. Fellow Christian, brother and sister in Christ, especially a member of Old Oak, Are you confident enough that you can explain this starting point of who Jesus is to somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is, to somebody who doesn't yet follow him and believe in him? Are you confident that you can explain it, at least in some degree? But knowing Jesus, according to the scripture, it's not just our starting point. It's our continuing point, isn't it? It's how we keep going. You see, real followers of Jesus want to know Jesus even more. So we're going to go back to the marriage analogy. If you get married and then you make no effort to know your spouse better and be with your spouse, you're not exactly living up to the true intention of marriage, are you? Real followers of Jesus not only start with the knowledge of Jesus, they want to keep on knowing Jesus and know him better. You think of the apostles Paul's prayers for other Christians. He prays in Colossians 1.10 that they would have an increased knowledge of God. He prays in Ephesians three verse nineteen that the Christians there would know more, would have the strength to know more, the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. We know Jesus. We want to know more. Christian brothers and sisters, let's make that our life's pursuit, to press into the scriptures, not just to accumulate more facts, but to know Jesus better, to be closer to him. And as we start knowing Christ, and we continue in that pursuit to know him better, you know there's something else that happens. There's something else that happens. We start to change. We start to change. And we've all experienced this in everyday life. 10-year-old Steve experienced this. Because to 10-year-old me, the height of cool was NBA players. I wanted to dress like NBA players. I wanted to shoot like NBA players. I wanted even to style my hair like NBA players, (laughs) which all of this was very tough for a pudgy white kid from the suburbs. (laughs) But it relates to a popular axiom. You may have heard it before. We become what we behold. We become what we behold as we press into Christ and to seek to know him better. We know we're really doing that when we start to become like him and live like him in our characters. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.18 says. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So do other activities and responsibilities require our attention? Sure. But our deepest pursuit that should be underneath that, that remains always, should be that we want to know Christ, and we want to be near him. And the more we behold, the more we become like him. And I think that's what the rest of this passage shows us as well. So, let's go to the next quality. A knowledge of Christ makes us humble. A knowledge of Christ, a knowledge of the Savior, makes us humble. Like many other places in the book of Mark, shortly after the identity of Jesus is made clear again, what it looks like to truly follow Jesus is made clear once again. So at the end of uh, Mark 12, we get that, what it looks like to follow Jesus, we get instructions of that by ways of contrast. A negative example, a positive example. Jesus starts with the negative example. He tells people to beware of the scribes. And we have to appreciate all that's what's going on with Jesus saying this. Keep in mind, Jesus has gone into the religious authorities' turf, their domain, the center part of their domain, the temple in Jerusalem. And he has survived and even thwarted their attacks. And now Jesus goes on the offensive. This is basically Jesus' goodwill hunting moment. No college education. And he comes into Harvard and schools everyone that's at Harvard. And why does he tell people to do this? Why does he tell people to beware of the scribes? So just look at verse 38 again, real closely. Beware of the scribes, why? Because they like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Stop there for a moment. We have a brief background to this behavior because if you saw somebody in a long robe outside today, you just thought they were weird, not really prideful. Um, The long robes would have distinguished these scribes as men of wealth and men of status. So just think of what it would look like to go to a third world country, I don't know, like Sudan, and show up in an Armani suit, custom made. You would stick out. When you saw a scribe walking in the street you were expected to rise before his presence. When scribes went to church, when they went to synagogue, they got the best seats in the house, the seats that faced the congregation. Even when they went out to eat, they got the places of honor, the corner booth that everyone wants, that just roped off just for them. What's the overall impression here? Whatever the scribes did, wherever they went, They made their position known. And they took advantage of all that their position would afford to them. The overall impression here is that these scribes craved recognition and they craved power. Instead of serving people and bringing them closer to God, the scribes used people to advance their own reputation. Instead of being concerned with the respect and adoration that people gave to God, The scribes were concerned with the respect and adoration that people gave to them. It's completely backwards. But friends, I wonder how many of our conflicts at home, at work, even at church, how many of our conflicts are due to this same attitude that the scribes have? That we crave recognition, we crave power, we crave control, we crave our own way how many of our conflicts are really rooted in that? Remember the words from James, James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Friends, whatever whatever gifts the Lord has given to us, whatever measure of influence the Lord has given to us, whatever position and relationships the Lord has given to us, let's be careful in how we use these things. Let's be careful to examine ourselves, to examine our ambitions, what we want, to examine what makes us upset. Could it be selfish cravings like these? Is that why we're upset? Well, to put it in the kids' lingo... Jesus puts the scribes on blast. I feel like I'm kind of young enough to still say that. Jesus puts the scribes on blast, and he's not done yet. He keeps going in verse 40. He says that the scribes also devoured widows' houses and for a pretense made long prayers. Now, background to this again. There's a debate to exactly what scenario Jesus has in mind when he says devouring widows' houses. There's one instance from an ancient Jewish historian named Josephus. He writes of a Jewish man who played the part of a scribe and succeeded in persuading a well-off woman to make a large donation to the temple. And this man would later just embezzle the money from her and take it for himself. Maybe it's a scenario like this. Whatever scenario Jesus has in mind, he's speaking against taking financial advantage of vulnerable and needy widows. Doesn't that still go on today? Absolutely. All those calls you get that annoy you, you know who they're directed at? They're directed at older people. On top of all that, the scribes did that. If that weren't enough, they attempted to cover up their actions with showy religious activity. So again, the scribes weren't concerned with loving their neighbors as themselves. They were concerned with using their neighbors for themselves. They were concerned with their own power, their own recognition, their own money. Can we say just right here that is really clear? Jesus speaks directly against people who use religion for money. Directly against people who try to use religion to make money, to make themselves rich. Many of you probably don't need reminders of this, but just to be clear, Stay away from teachers who use the name of Jesus to make themselves rich. Stay away from teachers who tell you that your Christianity should make you financially rich. Other words of Jesus, what does he say? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So remember what we said about a true knowledge of Jesus. It doesn't just show up in knowing facts about him. It shows up in how we live. So the scribes were full of Bible knowledge. They could explain their teachings very effectively, I'm sure. And we want to be able to do the same. We want to be able to explain why we believe what we believe very effectively, who Jesus really is according to the scriptures. We want to know that. We want to be able to explain it. But we want to know that so much, believe it so much, that it actually affects how we live that our doctrine actually shows up in our lives. Because we got to have a very faithful statement of faith and we can live a very crummy Christianity. So, friends, pray that we would be faithful and standing on the truth, but also pray that our faithfulness would include the truth changing how we live. Amen. In contrast to the scribes, a true, hum- a true knowledge of and faith in Christ should lead to humility when it comes to our position, our recognition, and our rank, and even our wealth. We should be content in all of those areas because God has given us all that we need in our Savior, Jesus who himself set himself aside, set his own position and rank aside by stepping off his throne, taking on flesh, living among us, even dying on the cross, all for our sake. We can be content and should be content in all those areas. Take Paul's words to the young Timothy from 1 Timothy 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. We want to meditate on that further, what it looks like to be content because of Jesus in all areas of our lives. Read 1 uh, 1 Timothy 6 this afternoon. Read Philippians 4 this afternoon. In contrast to the scribes, our true knowledge of and faith in Christ leads to humility in our reputations and how other people perceive us. You see, when we are like the scribes, we'll do whatever we can to mask our sins, to hide our faults, to keep up appearances. But because Jesus is our righteousness, because his death brings our full and final forgiveness, we are freed from the pride and embarrassment of having to lie about who we really are. So that we can and we should confess our sins rather than covering them up because our Savior is in our place, we are freed from keeping our struggles and our shortcomings to ourselves. We don't have to do that. We don't have to give the perception all the time that we are just fine. We can and should be humble enough to say that we don't have it all together, but that we do have a Savior and that we need his help. Commenting on this passage, one old pastor said, Let us be real, honest, thorough, and sincere in our Christianity. Real, honest, thorough, and sincere in our Christianity. Quality number three. A knowledge of the Savior should make us humble and should make us generous. See, there is more to Jesus than what the scribes thought they saw on the surface. And there is more to the scribes than what they portrayed on the surface. And in the last scene, we see that there is more to this widow and her meager gift than we perceive on the surface. Verse 41, take a look there. Jesus sits down at the treasury of the temple. And he's been tired before. We read of him being tired before. And it wouldn't be hard to think that Jesus is tired here in this moment, having endured endless challenges, talking and talking again. And we see again that it's just Jesus and his disciples. It's not a big crowd. And Jesus observed likely what would have, would, have, would have gone unnoticed by many of the people around him, especially during the time of year that he's in the temple, near the time of Passover, where the city of Jerusalem nearly quadrupled in the number of people who were there. The temple treasury was on one of the outer courts of the temple, called the Court of the Women, and it was on the wall of one of those courts. So against this wall was 13 brass receptacles in the shape of trumpets, or shofars uh, in, in Israel. So in these trumpets, the people would deposit their offerings. And it was often the case that onlookers could overhear the priests examining what and how much the people gave. But even if they couldn't hear that, keep in mind, there are no credit cards back then. There are no checkbooks back then. They're just coins. So even if you can't hear the priest you can hear what people are dropping into the offering plate. It's the same with this woman. And apparently it was quite the spectator sport to look at people giving what uh, what they give. So they had seats set up to watch this. I don't know how many people were around watching what people gave, but especially during Passover, you would think how the influx of people with all these rich people who came into Jerusalem, a lot of people might want to watch how much money people are bringing. But Jesus didn't take note of the big gifts, did he? He noticed the small one. A lot of our English translations will say that these two coins that the widow gave were equivalent to a value of a penny. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, you can see a little footnote after the word penny, the little number one. And you go down to the bottom, and you see that these were two lepta, which would have amounted to one sixty-fourth of a denarius. You remember that a denarius was a day's wage. It's so a one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. And our time and place, that's less than a penny. And that's what this woman gave. And despite this tiny gift, Jesus said this, this woman gave more than everyone else because she gave all that she had. I get it, I get it. You might say, Steve, this is a nice story. I get the principle behind it. But let's just be real. Let's be honest for a second. A big gift is straight-up more useful than a small gift, more practical. Friends, money is just another area where God operates on different values than we operate. Think of what the world teaches us to celebrate and to value when it comes to money. Go to any college campus, for example. Any college campus, you know, different buildings around the campus. And then they have certain names. Why do you think buildings are named certain names on college campuses? Sometimes it's because, you know, was a famous athlete, like thats, and they went to school there, a famous alumnus. But most of the time, buildings are named what they are because of how much money that person gave. oodles and oodles of money. I bet back then it worked the same way. They weren't going to rename the temple court the court of the poor Widow because of her gift. <laughs> but here, Jesus' values are not the world's values. Here, Jesus teaches us to celebrate faithfulness, not giftedness. Even as a church, can we put ourselves in the widow's shoes? We might not have a multi-million dollar budget. We might not pump out missionaries. We might not have a bunch of bells and whistles. But let's be faithful and generous with what we do have. Jesus teaches us here that our gifts are measured not by amounts, but by sacrifice. And in contrast to the scribes who made their lives all about themselves, who kept everything for themselves, who used people to get more for themselves, who covered up their sin to protect themselves, this poor widow sincerely followed the Lord and is generous to give back what the Lord gave to her, even the small amount it was. And she did all that without drawing attention to herself. We should learn from this scene also that God doesn't need our money. It's true. God does not need your money. We should never be impressed with how much we give God because God owns everything, including your money. Controversial statement. God owns your money. Christian, none of your money is yours. That's not to say you didn't work for it. But it is to say even your ability and your opportunity to work does not come from you. It comes from the Lord. Which means that we are simply stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Told to take good care of it. And so what a sweet reminder from this passage. That God not only does not need our money, but that he can use any gift to further his kingdom. The poor widow here, it made me think of uh, the disciple, the apostle Andrew. Doesn't relate to money. But Andrew, we don't really read about him a lot in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Don't know much about Andrew. All that we know really about Andrew is that when he first learned about who Jesus is, what did he do? He went and told his brother. Peter, just one little act, one little act of telling somebody else about Jesus, he told Peter, look what the Lord did with that, one little act, just like this poor widow here. The poor widow who anonymously gave all that she had in the temple on that Tuesday of Holy Week shows us that followers of Jesus are to be joyful, generous, and sacrificial givers, Friends, I wonder, does your use of money, however much you have, does your use of money tell that same story? Joyful, generous, sacrificial. Do you treat the offering plate like a tip jar or like a stewardship? Do you prepare in advance what you give? Or is it just kind of last minute? And when you prepare in advance to give, does what you plan ever cause you to pause? Do you ever hesitate a little bit? Oh, I don't know if I should write down that much. (laughs) Friends, that feeling, I'm not saying to be irresponsible, but that feeling is probably a good indication you're really being generous. If your gifts are always really easy for you to give, I would wager to say you're not giving sacrificially. So where does joyful, sacrificial generosity come from, you might ask? I know, it comes from pastors making you feel guilty about how much you give. <laughs> no, but I do want to call this to faithfulness. Joyful, sacrificial giving, generosity, friends, again, it comes from a deep, intimate knowledge of the Savior, the same place when we press in to know Jesus in the scriptures, we find one who, though he was rich for our sake, became poor. Just like we observe that Jesus was the ultimate rich young ruler, so the poor widow is just a small reflection of what Jesus did for us. You see, the poor widow had next to nothing and gave it away. Jesus had everything and gave it away. To the point of losing his very own life, And to the degree we press that down in our hearts, we will be shaped to have the perspective that our treasure is not anything on this earth. Our treasure is the Savior who lived and died and rose again for us. To the degree that we press the gospel of Jesus down into our hearts, we'll treat all that we have, our possession, our life, our new status as forgiven and adopted by God as a gift, a gift of God's grace. Which means that we will be marked by a deep seated, ever constant gratitude, freed from stinginess and released for joyful generosity. So here we are, friends. Another day in God's Word where we get to know our Savior, who Jesus is. And knowing our Savior, we pray we are made like our Savior to be humble, to be generous and then he is exalted in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, each week we want to confess our inability to live for you, to live in the way you've called us to live. Lord, not only we are unable, but we are also guilty. So Lord Jesus, we need your forgiveness, and we praise you that we have it, but we need you to live through us so that we do follow you in the way you would have us, to be humble, to be generous, and to press in to know you more. We pray, God, that you would mark us with these qualities for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.